0: Welcome to Saving Grace Church, located in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Our mission at Saving Grace Church is to love God, love others, and reach the world for Christ. We hope that this message brings you closer to God and helps strengthen your walk with Christ. So let's go ahead and get started today. Uh, We are going to be in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and the title of this message is the story continues, okay? The story continues. So at this point, I'm going to start off a little bit like Jason Rummel usually starts off with a little bit of a school lesson uh, for you. So how many of you could tell me a, a part of a structure of a story? What are some of the structures of a story that we hear? Does anybody have any, any thoughts on, on a structure of a story? Heroes are? What's that? The hero's arc, yes, it's kind of like an arc or a pyramid, right? Okay, so there's different pieces of that. We're not gonna get into it. Um, we have that uh, graphic. So, so you can see there's usually some background, there's some upward movement, there's a climax at the top, and then there's just the other information that just kind of falls into place as, as you go. So having said that, that's kind of the pattern we're going to be following today. However, I'm gonna tell you right now that I'm gonna leave you with a cliffhanger. I'm not telling you the end of the story, okay? The story continues, all right? It's almost like a TV show that ends with the words to be continued, right? So, So we know that with all lessons in school, there's always some tests to be had, right? Okay, so I am not actually going to give you the test this morning. But I do want to tell you about a story, or give you a story of a test, okay? So the first, first uh, story I want to give you today, in the, there was a, a student in a beginning logic course at a major university, okay? And the professor made an unusual offer to his students that were preparing for their final exam. He told them, you can bring to class on the day of the exam as much information as you can fit on an 8 by 11 sheet of paper, OK? So as you can imagine, all these students started writing as small as they can and, and making sure that their pencils were sharp so that they could fit as much information on that sheet of paper as, po- as possible. So the day of the test came, and one student came in. And he came into the test, and he put that piece of paper on the floor, and he brought with him an advanced logic student. And the advanced logic student stood on the piece of paper (laughs) and helped the the student and answered every question that he needed to know for that exam. So, needless to say, that student was the only one that got an A in that class, or on that test, okay? I want you to realize that this is a picture of what we have as Christians in Jesus Christ. The ultimate final exam will come when you have to stand before the Lord, before God, and he asks, why should I give you eternal life? You see, the reality is, and it's interesting that... that, um, Romans was shared because uh, this morning, because we're gonna be kind of going through some of the Romans road as well today. Um, but the reality is as Romans 3:23 through 24 tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified his, by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The Apostle John reminds us in 1 John 2:1, says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Because all of us have sinned, we don't have the answer to God's question and cannot pass that final test on our own. But Jesus changes everything. Okay. If you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus, you have someone who will stand in and provide the answer, an answer that leads to the gift of eternal life. Okay? So as we start Ephesians chapter 2 today, we are looking at the very heart of the gospel. We have an advocate in Jesus that helps us to pass that final test and takes us from the depths of sin to the mountaintop of grace. So would you pray with me for a minute, and then we'll get into today's passage. So Father, I just pray that you would help us to see your grace through your word today, that it would affect our lives, and that we would come alive and understand who you are, and then live out our lives the way that you would want us to live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's start by reading today's passage. If you could open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, We're going to be going through verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. As we go through this passage today, I want you to understand that Paul is talking to Christians to encourage us in what Jesus has accomplished within our lives. But if you are here this morning and you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus, my hope is that you will hear this message as a call to come to know who Jesus is. I hope that you will see the amazing grace and the incredible love that Jesus offers you, and that, yeah, that you, you will put your faith in him today. So we're going, to be follow, we're going to be looking at Ephesians in the following three sections. It breaks out into three really easy-to-follow sections. Um, so verses 1 through 3, I'm uh, calling this section the bad news. Sections, uh, or verses 4 through 7, this section's the good news. And the last part, verses 8 through 10, are going to be the rest of the story. So that's how we're kind of going through today's um, scripture passage. So we're going to be spending a lot of our time in sections 1 and 2 today. Uh, And again, as I um, said, we're going to leave you with a little bit of a cliffhanger. But I also want you to realize that these first couple sections are a little bit uncomfortable. Actually, the first section is uncomfortable. It kind of pinches us. In order to wake us up. Uh, and so, right from the start, verse one gives us a real life, realistic look at the state of our lives in this world that we live in. Part of the reason that we have to acknowledge this dark side of life is because we don't have a great appreciation of who God is and what He has done for us until we recognize the desperate need that we were in, and what he has rescued us from. You see, it gives us perspective on where we've come from. So verses 1 through 3, the bad news, all right? And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Notice the word that Paul uses here. He uses the word dead, okay? He doesn't use the word sick or ill or struggling If someone's just sick, then then maybe they can move a little bit or do some things on their own to to get better. But Paul makes it clear that we were dead. Okay, A dead person can't move on their own. And they have no hope of getting better. Keep in mind that the death being spoken of here is not the physical death, but a spiritual death um, that he's talking about. He's telling us about the state that we are in. Okay, Paul makes it clear to us that these verses, in these verses, that we are sinful, and death is the result of sin. Romans six twenty three tells us that the wages of sin is death. Because we were dead, we have a desperate need for someone to save us if we are to find life. Okay, You see, part of the problem here is that the world does not like to acknowledge, always acknowledge the state that we're in. The world may say something like, um, I may not be perfect, but I do good things, and as long as I do more good things than bad things, then I'll be all right. You see, this this stems from an idea of self-sufficiency, that we have the ability to be good in our own power. But the Bible teaches us something completely different. King David in Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Romans 8, 7, and 8, For the mind is set on the flesh. We've heard this before today, haven't we? Or uh, similar verses. Set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So without Christ, we are dead. We are walking around, but there is no life. It's almost like a modern zombie story, right? People are are walking around dead, okay? But there's no life within them. The world does not always receive it when we say that Jesus is the only way to life. The world tends to say, you know, maybe how narrow-minded we are, and maybe that we use the Bible as a crutch. But just like us, before we were Christians, we too were sometimes sometimes enticed by the world's thought system. Okay? We were being tossed from idea to idea, and we're encouraged to conform to whatever the current beliefs are. The problem with this is that everything can't be right, because many of these ideas are opposites of each other. So verse 2 gives us some additional insight into this state that we are in, in which you once walk following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Without God giving us help and direction, we follow and are subject to the temptations and powers of this world. The world seems to pressure us more and more and more than ever to conform to the social value systems of this present age. One of the main value systems that dominates our culture and the media today is relativism. Okay? Now, relativism is an idea that knowledge, truth, and morality exist in relation to culture, society, or historical context and are not absolute. It teaches that ethical truths are based on individuals, on the individuals that are holding them. Okay? Isaiah 5 20 through 21 tells us, though, warns us, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. In Ephesians verse 2, in this verse, Satan is described it as a power the prince of the power of the air, and in other places in Scripture, as the prince of this world. Okay, Second Corinthians 11:14 14 also tells us that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. We need to seek and hold true to God's word and wisdom in our present culture because Satan likes to mix just enough good with evil to achieve his purposes. So let me give you a a quick example of this, okay? This is a phrase that I have heard many, many times in the past year. And I've heard this phrase from, from many different people, many different walks of life. But they say, you do you. You do you, okay? There is truth in this statement. There is truth in it. God has uniquely created us to have distinct personalities and gifts, and we should celebrate differences in who God created us to be. We are all different and created by God for his purposes, and we should not always compare our differences. Most people, however, use this phrase in a much different way. They use it in the context of as long as you are happy with what you are doing, then it is right and good for you to do it. This is relativism. Our problem is, that, is that as we talked about earlier, we are tempted to gratify the desires of our flesh. And this sin within us is in opposition to God's will and subject to his wrath. Commentator Francis Foulkes says this, And if men are surrendered to the power of evil, they become those whose habit of life is contrary to the living God. And so they are rightly called the children of disobedience. And verse 3 confirms this for us. It says, "...among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind." What are the passions of the flesh? Galatians 5 explains this to us. It, says, it gives us a list of some of these passions. It says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivals, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. You see, our way of life before Christ was a life of sin and in disobedience, following the lusts of the flesh. The words by nature in this verse, in verse 3, refers to what's inside of a person at birth or by the habitual processes of of their life. We have been this way even since we were born. Another way of looking at this is, what do you do when you are left to yourself? you will likely do what is inside of your nature. This leads us to the doctrine of total depravity of man. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says this, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Not one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Within verse three, it says that we are children of wrath. And what it's talking about is talking about the fact that God is a holy God, okay? He acts in his righteousness to punish sin. This is not a vindictive reaction by God, as we will see in coming up in verse four. It's because of his great love and his mercy. And he cannot stand by when people act unrighteously against him. Okay, so have I pinched you enough this morning? <laughs> I know these things are sometimes hard to hear, but they help to re- us to remember and appreciate what Jesus has saved us from. Okay? Standing at the lowest point gives us perspective and a better appreciation for his love and his grace. But God calls us to something different, right? Right? Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. He doesn't want us to conform to this world's way of thinking. He wants us to come to him so that he can help us to live a life that seeks and is transformed by him. In a few weeks, we'll read in Ephesians chapter 4, once we get there, and in verse 14, it says this, "...so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes." You see, God wants us to see the end of the story so that we can begin to walk in his purposes that he has for us in our lives. This transforming power only comes from Jesus and the good news of the gospel. We may have been dead in sin, but we are alive in Christ. So let's get to the good news. Are you ready for some good news now? Verses 4 through 7. Verse 4 says it completely changes our perspective. But God... But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. I want to share with you another short story here. R. Kent Hughes talks about a story that, that I really relate to because you guys know that I like hiking. And this is another hiking story. Sorry, I'm, I'm kind of like Joe. He's always doing running stories. I may always be doing hiking stories. <laughs> but, but this one's about hiking again. It says, um, he, talks about, he talks about this story. Of, I believe this is of him. So some years ago, as a youth pastor, I hiked with some of my high schoolers to the top of Mount Whitney in California, the highest spot in the continental United States, 14,495 feet. We exalted over the wonderful panorama of the Sierra Nevada and the Mojave Desert as we gazed together from what seemed to be the top of the world one of our party pointed out that only 80 miles to the southeast was Death Valley, the lowest spot in the United States at 280 feet below sea level and the hottest place in the country with a record 134 degrees in the shade. What a contrast. One place is the top of the world, the other the bottom. One place is perpetually cool, the other relentlessly hot. From Mount Whitney, you look down on all of life. From Death Valley, you can only look up to the rest of the world. In Ephesians 2, Paul takes us down the valley of the soul, down to the valley of, sorry, into the death valley of the soul, and then up to the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. His method is contrast, okay? It's from death to life, from hell to heaven, from bondage to freedom, from pessimism to optimism. The journey's contrast will enhance our appreciation for what we have in Christ and will influence the way that we live. Verse 4 again, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Two of the most amazing words, but God. These words change our entire perspective. These two words pull us from the depths of the desert and take us to the mountaintop of grace. Again, Romans 6.23 says this, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because of the gift of God's Son and his atoning death in our our lives on the cross that he did for us, we now have an advocate that stands before the judgment throne of God and intercedes for us on our behalf. It is a free gift. We cannot earn it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because of the intervening grace of God, we are no longer guilty from our sins and an object of his wrath because of the righteousness of Jesus 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. God shows himself full of mercy. Not just a little bit of mercy, but an overwhelming mercy. And mercy is deliverance from judgment, or God not punishing us, For the sins that we deserve. It is favor shown to those who deserve the exact opposite. This verse uses the word rich, but please understand this is not talking about material wealth or worldly wealth. It is talking about the spiritual blessing that we receive when we come to Christ. This is not the prosperity gospel, all right? But about a God so rich in mercy and willing to forgive us for all that we have done against him. Think about that. Stories the Bible tells us, or think about the stories that the Bible tells us about taking God's people from deserts to mountaintops. Here's just a couple to to show you. Ruth was a widow foreigner in Israelite society, a hated Moabite nationality, but becomes a part of God's family and is a part of Jesus' family lineage. There's Esther, an orphan of a nation living in exile that becomes queen. David was a shepherd boy that became a king. And then Jesus shares the story of the prodigal son, a son that squanders his inheritance in sin. And his father restores him to the family. In Jesus' own words, he talks about uh, John's disciples come to him and ask him uh, if he is the Messiah. Luke 7, says this, And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them all people going from the desert to the mountaintop of grace. The good news is that Jesus defeated the power of sin by his death and resurrection and offers us eternal life if we place our faith in him. He shows us the end of the story. Verses five through seven say this, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Not only is it deliverance from the power of sin in this life, it means the deliverance of the presence of of sin in the end. Not that he's, he, he notes that he expresses this as a completed action. Right? He expresses it as a, a completed action. When we believe and put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are saved. It's also interesting to look at the language that Paul uses in these verses, okay? Notice the word "with. Okay, and the word in. He made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, Paul references union with Christ approximately 200 times in his writings. About 40 of those are found in the book of Ephesians itself. In Christ, in the Lord, With Christ, God accomplishes the same acts in us. It's incredible to me that we share in this blessing because of our adoption into the family of God. He makes us alive. He raises us up and seats us in the heavenly places like he does with Jesus. Our citizenship is now in heaven. And one day we will live in the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness. In our human minds, we can't fathom the expanse of heaven. It is limitless and lasts for an eternity. And like Joe talked about last last week, this should make our hearts just overflow with thankfulness and praise for what God has done. This is good news. But I also want you to consider that the story isn't over yet. All right? In fact, this story is continuing right now through all of us. Joe started his sermon last week by asking you a series of questions. He said this, Do you think that God is presently at work? Do you think that God is at work in your friends and your family? Do you think that God is is at work in our church, in Indiana, PA, in our country? So we're going to wrap things up with verses 8 through 10, the rest of the story. These are really familiar verses. But before we get into them, uh, just real briefly, I, I want to read to you one more story. Okay, And it goes like this. This is about a a guy named Gordon, okay? So it just happens to be another youth pastor too. So when Gordon accepted the youth pastor position at his church, he learned that the job required CPR training. Reluctantly, he signed up for for a class offered by the local YMCA, and Gordon felt a little uncomfortable in his class at at first, but decided to make the best of it. When things got a little boring, he entertained the class, just like a youth, <laughs> youth leader, right? <laughs> and he irritated the instructor with, with a few jokes. But even though he didn't take the instruction seriously, he managed to pass the CPR exam. He became a certified lifesaver, though he had very little confidence in his ability to actually save someone's life. A few weeks later, Gordon was driving to work when he witnessed a traffic accident. He jumped out of his car to see if he could help, and somebody yelled, "'Does anybody here know CPR?' Nervously, Gordon answered, "'I do,' and stepped to the front. There was a man on the ground who appeared to be unconscious, and Gordon told someone to call 911, and he quickly examined the victim." He checked to see if the man was breathing and found nothing. Gordon knew that he was supposed to administer quick breaths and force air into the man's lungs, but at that moment, the reality of the situation hit him. What am I doing here? He wondered. I can't do this. I don't remember a thing from that class. Gordon backed away for several seconds to collect his thoughts, and that's when he noticed just how dirty the man was. There was no way I could give him mouth to mouth resuscitation, Gordon thought. But the gravity of the situation overtook him. This man was dying. And Gordon knew something that could save his life. Gordon knelt down, cupped his mouth over the man's, and began giving him quick breaths. He checked for breathing, still nothing. The man wasn't getting oxygen. Gordon gave him more quick, forceful breaths. Dozens of onlookers encouraged him. Some of them even prayed. After what seemed like an eternity, the man on the ground finally started breathing on his own. And about that time, a team of paramedics arrived on the scene and thanked Gordon and assured him that everything was going to be all right and that the man would live. Gordon walked away from the incident feeling overwhelmed, despite the fact that he felt completely inadequate and unprepared to save somebody's life. He had actually done it. Gordon found himself prepared to save a man's life because he spent some time with the CPR instructor that taught him lessons for life. So how about you? In the coming days and weeks and months, your story continues. So I'm going to close with these verses in 8 through 10. I'd like to invite the worship team back up as I, as I close this message. But this is where I leave you with the cliffhanger. Your homework this week is to study and consider the last three verses of this passage, verses that most of you know very, very well. Consider the free gift that Jesus offers you by placing your faith or trusting that He will save you from your sin. Like we talked about at the beginning of the message, we have an advocate in Jesus Christ. Verses 8 through 10 says this For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk, on, walk in them. So what is your next step? How are you individually going to walk out this story. Verse 10 encourages us that we are his workmanship. He created us uniquely. Your personality and character were created for his service. Look at me. Three months ago, I was a quiet, introverted account manager at an electric motor shop. So as we close, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us to finish strong as we live out the works he has prepared for us to do. The story continues through you.